Jeremiah 18. If you need a Bible to follow along, I'm pretty sure we can accommodate that. I think we have some Bibles here somewhere. Jeremiah 18. Scholars disagree about this next section of Jeremiah. I feel like I preface most Jeremiah messages with that because it's almost always true. The, the order and the chronology and, and, and a lot of the, the choreography of Jeremiah is much debated. What isn't debated is, is that chapters 18, 19, and 20 go together if for no other reason than thematically. Now, are chapters 18 and 19 one message? Is 18 one message and 19 in the beginning of 20 one message? It's hard to know, and I don't particularly have an opinion. But because Jeremiah is so associated with this story, with this concept, this metaphor, the potter and the clay, I mean, people, people who don't know anything else about Jeremiah, they, 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 they might know that association. Um, for that reason, if, if no other reason, we're going to take chapter 18 as its own section tonight. And we might be drawing a line where we shouldn't, but there's a lot here. Certainly enough, it's rich enough to warrant its, its own evening. So Jeremiah 18, we'll dive in. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Jeremiah is not the only book in the Bible to use this metaphor, by the way, the potter and the clay. It shows up a bunch of different places. It shows up in Job. It shows up several different places in Isaiah, Isaiah 29 and 45 and, and 64. It shows up in Psalm 2, verse 9. And then in Romans, Paul quotes from Isaiah 29, Revelation, in Jesus' seven letters to seven churches, he quotes from Psalm 2, verse 9. So like I said, it's, it's, it's a po popular, is not the right word. It's a much used metaphor in Scripture, but probably most closely associated with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. Down, well, Jerusalem is is always up. You go down from Jerusalem, but he's probably not leaving Jerusalem. He's probably going to the Valley of Hinnom, uh, also known as the Valley of Gehenna, there to the west of Jerusalem proper. But wherever it was, go there, God says to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah clearly is expected to know where there is. Go there. I've got something to teach you. I've got an object lesson waiting for you. Verse 3, Then I went to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. Technically, in the Hebrew, it would be wheels, because... That's, that's what a potter's wheel is, right? It's the, it's the upper one where the clay is and then the lower one that he's, he's kicking to make the upper wheel turn. He's, he's throwing a pot is, is what he's doing, a, a potable, a vase. He's making something. And it doesn't turn out the way that he expects it to. Whatever the potter is making isn't taking shape the way that he desired. Verse 4, the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. And, and what we take away from that, of course, is the issue wasn't the potter. The issue wasn't that he was a hack 
that he wasn't skilled, that he wasn't good at his craft. No, the, the, the issue is with the clay. It was inferior quality or it wasn't moist enough. For whatever, it was fighting back. For whatever reason, it wasn't taking shape. Now the challenge when we, when we enter territory where the symbolism is so rich like it is here, the potter and the clay, you can take that in a lot of different directions, right? Four verses in, any one of us could come up with a half a dozen different sermons that we could preach just from what we've read so far. How God is the God of second chances. How God is the God who redeems. How he's the potter and we're the clay and we shouldn't expect to know his plans for us. The consequences of fighting back against the goads. How God turns what feels like a test into a testimony. We could keep going and going and going. And all of those would be good sermons. All of those things are true. But we have to be careful jumping to application before we've identified the interpretation, right? In any given passage of Scripture, there's one interpretation. Infinite number of applications, as, as, as there is here. But if we decide on the application and then back into an interpretation, that's eisegesis. That's, that's proof texting. We want to practice exegesis. We want to let God speak to us what he intends to say to us from his word. We need to let God provide the interpretation, and he does. Verse 5, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, giving the interpretation, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Our pride wants to cast us as the stars of the show, right? The life of the party. The leading actor on the stage. Verse 5 and 6, God reminds us, we're not. We're not the star of the show. We're not the lead actors. He is. Grammatically, we're the direct object. We receive the action. We receive the love. We receive the grace. We receive the correction or the judgment or the revelation or whatever it is. But God is the subject, the potter. He's the actor. And we are the ones being acted upon. He's sovereign over all creation including, he just reminded us, Israel, or, or any nation. At the same time, though, now hold that thought in your head. God is sovereign over all creation, over every nation. At the same time, God goes on to say, he doesn't exercise his sovereignty capriciously, arbitrarily. He rules and reigns over nations with careful attention to their conduct. We matter, he's about to tell us. Verse 7, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if, verse 8, if that nation against whom I have spoken, that nation against whom I pronounced judgment, if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. What we do matters. There's an interplay here 
between God's sovereignty and our free will. God just said, I might ordain judgment and then subsequently choose to stay my hand if the nation against whom I pronounce judgment chooses to repent. What's an easy example? Nineveh. Yeah. God says to Jonah, hey, go preach repentance to Nineveh. Let's see what happens. And Jonah says, I don't like this very much because I don't like the Assyrians. And if I preach repentance, they might repent. And I'd really rather see them get nuked. God is, is, is it's in, it's careful, we have to be careful to understand this. God's not flaky. God's not wishy-washy. God doesn't wake up one day and decide to do one thing and then wake up the next day and decide to do the next thing. He's always doing what's best. But he's doing what's best based on the actions of those he's ruling over. People try to turn this into a contradiction or into a paradox. God changing his mind means he's not really omniscient. No, he is. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's everything the Bible says he is. He always does what's best. He can't not do what's best. That's what it is to be God. Always doing what's best. But we get a vote as to what version of best we get to experience. Our actions, our repentance or, or lack thereof, our choices, determine the best that we get to experience. And, and that's not a mind-boggling concept. Football team trots out on a, 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 on a Sunday afternoon. The offense goes up to the line of scrimmage and they see a different defense than they were expecting. The quarterback audibilizes. The quarterback says, wait, wait, we're not going to run the play. I called them the huddle because it's a whole different defense than I was expecting. We're going to do this instead. I've been playing chess with, with one of the youth lately. And, and when it's my turn to move, my best move depends on what his last move is. And then I move, and his best move determined, is determined by what move I just made. Parenting. Parenting, we're all, as parents, we're always trying to do what's best for our children, right? But our children's behavior determines what best looks like. If they're being little cretins, best might, might not look like ice cream. If they clean their room, if they, if, if, if they pick up after themselves, if they're being obedient, it might look like a trip to the zoo. Nineveh's an example of God saying, well, hang on. They just repented. So I'm going to, they repent, God relents. Now later, they go back to being knuckleheads, and, and, and God says, okay, well, I'm going to judge them after all, and destroys them in 612 BC. Their actions determined what version of best they experienced. Verse 9, God goes on to say, it works the other way around too. A nation that I previously determined to bless can go rogue, can turn from my ways, and they're going to get a whole different version of what's best for me. Verse 9 is on this page. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said would benefit it. 
the nation that God had planned to do good things for, if they rebel against God, God says, okay, you don't get ice cream anymore. And the best example of that, God's about to tell us, Judah, the example right in front of him. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. That, that word fashioning, depending on your translation, it might read preparing or framing. Whatever it is in English, it's, it's the same root word as potter. God says, I'm, I'm the potter here. I'm forming, I'm shaping something. I'm planning, I'm devising, I'm creating something. And, and what I'm creating for you right now, this moment, is judgment. What's the implication? What's God's suggestion? Maybe repent while you still can. Repent before it's too late. Still verse 11. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And maybe we can go back to the original plan where I bless you. Maybe it won't have to come to disaster. Except we know it will, right? God's offer is a real offer as he's making it. The fact that he's saying it, the fact that he's speaking it to Judah through Jeremiah, the fact that he says, hey, go tell them this, means in God's eyes it's not too late. His heart would accommodate repentance. His actions would change if Judah changed. Problem, Judah had already hardened its collective heart, Re refused to trade the road that they were on for what was behind door number two. Verse 12, they said, that's hopeless. So we'll walk according to our own plans. And will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart? It doesn't come across super well in the English, but there's sort of a tragic irony in the tone in which verse 12 is expressed. Judah's not really disputing the charge. They're, they're acknowledging, yeah, we're going our own way, doing our own thing, marching to the beat of our own drum, and it'll probably end badly for us, but what are you going to do? It is what it is. They're acknowledging, yeah, Jeremiah, you might be right, but... We're on the road that we're on. Chips are going to fall. Which seems bizarre to us, doesn't it? It seems incredible that God is warning them, turn back, turn back now, and they're shrugging and saying, eh, I, I guess I think we're just going to see how it plays. It seems bizarre, but I've had dozens of conversations just like that. Probably you have too. I've had conversations within walking distance of, of this building with... People using fentanyl, using ketamine, using hard drugs. Conversations where I've, I've said, if you keep going, you are going to die. I mean, that's, fentanyl is just Russian roulette, right? It's, it's, it's a matter of time before the statistics keep, you know, catch up with you. If you keep going, you're going to die. And I've had people say, you're probably right. But I'm not ready to stop. And that's sort of what God is hearing from Judah. That's sort of how they're responding to Jeremiah. Yeah, you might be right, but we're on the road we're on. Got to see it through to the end. 
This probably is the road of destruction, but gone too far to turn back. Now, whether this was the actual conversation that people had with Jeremiah, whether they actually had this back and forth, or whether this is God just responding to what he knew was in their hearts, it's hard to say. But either way, God answers verse 13. Okay, well, if that's your response, therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the Gentiles who has heard such things. The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. What he's saying is the Gentiles practice idolatry. I mean, obviously, and that's bad, but at least they do it faithfully. They're faithful. They're consistent with the evil that they do. They pick a God and they stay with it. What Israel has done, trading one God for another, trading a faithful God for for an image, for an idol, that's unheard of, God says. That spiritual adultery is, is what he's implying when, when he says the virgin of Israel. You've left your husband, who did nothing but love you and take care of you. That's horrible, he says, verse 13. Verse 14, he says, it's unnatural. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? The Hebrew here is really hard to translate. If you, if, you, if you compare translations side by side, they're wildly different in what they do with verse 14. But, it, but it's always something along the lines of there's, there's a way things work in the natural world. There are certain rules that nature abides by. And what Judah is doing is unnatural. What Judah is doing would be like water flowing uphill. In nature, water flows downhill. Judas flowing uphill. Verse 15, my people have forgotten me. They've burned incense to worthless idols, and they've caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in pathways and not on a highway, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. They've left the road. They're bushwhacking. They're freelancing. They're skiing out of bounds. And every time I've ever skied out of bounds, there's a big old sign saying, proceed at your own risk. And that's essentially what God is saying. You've left the road. I'm not responsible for what happens next. And by the way, what happens next will be your land will become desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. People are going to shake their heads and go, they're going to hiss through their teeth at what Judah has done forever, especially when they see the result, I'll scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I'll show them the back and not the face on the day of their calamity. East wind would be a Sirocco, that, that wind that would blow over the desert and, and come out dry and scorching and leave vegetation just shriveled and dried up and blowing away. And God says, that's what's going to happen. And I'm not going to watch. I'm going to turn my back on you. You turned your back on me, I'm going to turn my back on you. And the Babylonian army is going to come in hot like a Sirocco. And they're going to have their way with you. They're going to suck all of the life out of you and then scatter you like dry vegetation from the, in, the, in the desert wind. If God, if God gave any one of us so vivid a warning, so graphic and horrific a picture 
of where the choices we're making were leading, you'd like to think we'd turn around, wouldn't you? You'd like to. You'd hope so. Except that's not how sin works. Sin blinds us, right? Confuses us. Ultimately, sin makes us stupid. It robs us of good judgment. I like to think of myself as a decently bright guy. But I remember before coming to Christ, and, and some of you have heard this story, I was convinced the Bible was true and Jesus was real, and, the, and, and, and I, I was convinced of the veracity of the truth claims of Scripture for probably a year before I surrendered my life. And, and when confronted about that, when confronted with, okay, if you believe it, then why don't you surrender to it? My answer was, I'm not ready but you know what? By, by getting deeper into sin, I'll just love God more when I finally commit my life to him. And at any time, I could have died and would have never known his love. I would have been separated from his love forever. In fact, it was almost dying and coming face to face with that that, that finally broke me. Judah doesn't repent. And those who heard God's words through Jeremiah decided they didn't want to hear it anymore. Verse 18, they decided to blame the messenger. They said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. They said, you know, we've heard what you have to say. We don't want to hear anymore. We, we don't really, we, we've decided it's not true. And they're rationalizing their response by saying, no way the priests stopped treat, teaching the law. No way the wise, the counselors among us, stopped giving good counsel. There's no conceivable reality where the prophets stopped prophesying. Sadly, all three of those things had already happened. They're saying Jeremiah's got to be a false prophet because there's no way any of this is going to ever come to pass. They already had. The priests were already busy rewording and reinterpreting the law. The scribes were helping them, tweaking things to accommodate what people wanted to hear. And the prophets, probably prophets abounded, sure, but they were false prophets giving good news. Glad tidings. But they weren't, the people of Judah were, were determined to not let the facts get in their way. They weren't going to let truth slow them down. They said, let's silence the guy who's making us uncomfortable. Let's A, not listen to him, and B, either attack him with the tongue, slander him, discredit him with our tongues, or it could also be, let's, let's use his words against him. Let's take his words and use them to establish that he's a false prophet. That, that phrase with the tongue could go either way. The Hebrew could accommodate both. But let's not listen to him, and let's, and let's try to do something about him. Jeremiah's response, verse 19, Give heed to me, O God. Listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Jeremiah's getting a little whiny. 
He forgot that God told him from the beginning of his ministry, from the day that God called him, God said, this isn't going to be easy duty. This isn't going to make you the most popular kid in Judah. God said that from the beginning. And when Jeremiah complained in verse 12, God said, well, that's good. The thing is, it only gets worse from here. But Jeremiah is wallowing a little bit. Do you hear them, God? He's, he's sort of going caring on us. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Shall evil be repaid for good? For they've dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. I've told them what you told me to tell them, and now they want to kill me, and I want to know what you're going to do about it, God. The fact that he says that they're going to kill me, that could be an exaggeration. Or if, if what they said about attacking with the tongue was really, we're going we're to get this guy branded a false prophet, then that would be doing to him what they tried to do to Jesus, and the consequence would be stoning. So, so he might not be exaggerating here. But he is kind of kicking his feet and pounding on the table and saying, God, what are you going to do about this? I want to speak to the manager. And he actually has some suggestions for what God should do about it. Verse 21 so here, here's, here's what I'm going to say, God. Deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. Let your young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. For they've dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me, to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity nor blot out their sin from your sight, but let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in your time of anger. Jeremiah is not even asking for justice here. Smite them, God. Kill them and kill their wives and children while you're at it. Verse 23, he's literally saying, I want you to lose your temper. Kill them until they're dead and then kill them some more and then bring them back to life and kill them again. Is it any wonder most of the sermons that ever any of us have ever heard preached on this chapter are from those first four verses? <laughs> Anyone ever hear a, hear a message preached on the end of chapter 18? It's kind of ugly. I mean, what Jeremiah says is, is really ugly. What about what God says? What about God's reply? What reply? Exactly. Jeremiah throws a temper tantrum. No other way to describe it. What's God's response? He waits. He doesn't smack Jeremiah, doesn't rebuke him, doesn't even correct him. He just waits. And I find that incredibly encouraging. Because I'm human. And sometimes I lose my temper. Sometimes I even lose my temper at God. Yes, I get that I shouldn't. Yes, I saw the meme floating around Facebook. Instead of saying I'm human and using that as an excuse to walk in the flesh, I should say I'm saved and use that as a reminder to walk in the spirit. Which is pretty good, actually. I mean, it's true. It's right. I agree. I get it. 
And sometimes I still lose it. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love them, serve them, forgive them, pray for them. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I remember as a young believer hearing one of my favorite Bible teachers talk about getting pulled over by the police uh, near Big Bear, California. And he thought that he was being pulled over for something dumb, something he didn't do, something that was he shouldn't, he, he shouldn't have been pulled over for. And at the end of the encounter with the police officer and the ticket and everything else, he said, do you know Jesus as your, as your Lord and Savior? The police officer said no. He said, good, and he drove away. <laughs> as a young believer, I thought that was a funny story. Until I repeated it to one of my pastors, and he said, okay, but you realize that he's literally hoping that the police officer is going to die and burn in hell forever. <laughs> okay, it's less funny that way. <laughs> That's essentially what Jeremiah is hoping for, though. Verses 20 to 23, that's what he's praying for. But as heinous as it is, God just waits. And God does that a lot. Did that with Jonah. Remember we were talking about his ministry to Nineveh earlier. And Jonah got all pouty. God, if I go to Nineveh and if I preach repentance, they might repent and then you won't blow them up. And God says, okay. And Jonah says, well, and God says, okay. <laughs> and then Jonah finally obeys and Nineveh repents and then Jonah goes and sits on a hill under a plant and pouts. And God waits. What's the message of the chapter? If, if, if we let God interpret it for us. There's lots, lots of cool things we could jump off into and talk about. But taken as a whole... What's the message of the chapter? God is sovereign? Yes. But what does God do with his sovereignty? He lets us change our mind. Verse 8, he says, The nation doing evil, the person doing evil, the person deserving of judgment, God gives them time to repent. He says so. I let them change their mind. And if they do... I change my course of action, God says. Understand, we're in a different position than Judah. Because the worst sin that we could conceive of won't bring down holy judgment on us. Because God already brought holy judgment down on Jesus. God has already punished Jesus for whatever we've done, whatever we will do, whatever we could do. But I can mess up my fellowship with God. Like the prodigal son, I can convince myself God never wants to see me, hear me, talk to me again. I can get so ashamed of myself, I can't bear the thought of facing him again. And so I stop talking, stop praying, stop listening, stop trusting, eventually stop caring. But really, at the end of my tantrum, at the end of my fit, at the end of my pity party, at the end of my whatever, what does God say? What is God wanting to say? What is he waiting to say? Are you done? Are you good? You ready to keep going? Even if my fit of rage or jealousy or whatever has done real damage, 
even if I've really hurt people, people around me. What's God's response? Verse 4, let's figure out where we're going to go from here. Football team gets up to the line of scrimmage. They don't recognize the defense. And pretty soon it's fourth and forever. Okay. Where do we go from here? I don't, notice, I don't notice a trap that Caleb lays for me playing chess and then all of a sudden I'm playing without my queen. Okay. Where do we go from here? Kids are abject, knuckle, abject knuckleheads. And you realize, okay, if you hadn't made the move that you made as a parent three steps back, maybe we wouldn't have gotten here, but now we're here. At any given point, we've got to, we've got to look and say, okay, where do we go from here? And that's what God is saying to us. Yeah, you made a mess. Yeah, you dropped a whole carton of eggs. What kind of bomblet are we going to make together? Because God redeems. Period. God is sovereign. But in his sovereignty, what does he do? God redeems. Even our anger, even our envy, even our sin. Hand it over to God, he redeems. That's not an excuse. That's not a rationalization. That's not saying that sin doesn't matter. Nothing in what God says about Judah makes what they're doing any less heinous. But what it should say to us, it should make us more hopeful more willing to run to God after we've fleshed out, after we've messed up, knowing that he's waiting for us to be done with whatever we're doing and get ready to be walking with him again. Because whenever we're ready to repent, he's ready to walk with us. He's waiting for us. He's sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he lets us repent. Man, that's good news. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to repent. Thank you for the joy of repentance. The restoration of fellowship that makes us wonder, why did we let it go on so long? Why did we get so far away? Why didn't we do this sooner? Lord, if any here tonight, if any online, if any listening to this message sometime down the road are at that point where they realize God's waiting. Lord, would you stir their hearts? Would you affirm the truth of your word, of who you are? Draw them back, beckon them. Welcome them, Lord. So that you can meet them with a different good.